This is a podcast from WSUM. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of the Abolitionist Roundtable with the MJLC. I'm your host, Ray, and today we are joined by two of our editors-in-chief of the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism. Woo! Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be here. This is really exciting. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Would love to. Uh, Do you want to go? Okay. Hi, I'm Anna. I am one of the co-editors-in-chief of the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism. And hi, I'm Rhea. I'm the other co-editor-in-chief of the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism. Um, Yeah, so today we're just going to be doing a little introduction episode um, talking about what an abolitionist is and what is the point of the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism. Um, So our episodes in the future are going to be kind of based around what our study group topics are about and kind of fleshing out that discussion into more of a conversation, to say. Yeah, bringing in different voices. Yeah. Um, So this idea actually originated with our dear friend, Allison. Um, So props to her for that idea and for giving us this beautiful concept of an abolitionist roundtable where we bring in a bunch of different voices from different backgrounds to talk about issues that we find pertinent to abolition. Such a cool title. I just, I personally love the word roundtable. I started using it for like this one talk thing here at WSEM and I'm like, I love the word roundtable. So what is the MJLC? What's the history of it? How was it formed and what is the point? Yeah, um, I think we're going to get into the history later, but currently I'd say the MJLC or the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism is a study group that produces a magazine centered in an abolitionist framework. So what that means is we're a group of students who are really passionate about abolition, and we'll explain that later as well. But we meet and discuss issues tied to social justice. So our study group has ranged on topics from the housing crisis in Madison to strikes happening with TAs on campus and with Starbucks employees. We've talked about healthcare, education, labor and credit. And we kind of have a weekly study group that focuses on social justice and takes like a holistic framework mainly centered around abolition or examining the carceral state. And on top of that, we're a literary magazine. So we make a collection of fiction, prose, poetry, art, and produce this magazine sort of rooted in those conversations that we have in social justice. So it's very much an effort to be activists on campus while also promoting advocacy and um, the activist potential of art, which I think is incredibly exciting. Yeah. And this magazine actually existed long before Rhea and I actually got here. Um, and I'll hand it over to Rhea to tell about like the history of where we came from. But we've recently rebranded. So if you recognize the label MJLC, there's been a formal MJLC and a sort of new rebranded MJLC, to make that clear. Yeah, so the MJLC was initially our literary criticism journal. And every school has one. If you Google any college and look up literary criticism, you'll find it. And Traditionally, literary criticism means a 10 to 23 page academic essay, typically a literary analysis or rhetorical analysis of one to two novels or a piece of text with, you know, MLA or Chicago style citations. It's very much an academic paper and it's very much rooted in academia. And I think the slogan of the MJLC was to show the brightest young minds of the liberal arts. And mainly it was history papers or English papers. And again, every school has a literary journal. Um, The Literary Journal here at Madison began in 2010. An amazing team of students ran it. The MJLC garnered an international reputation with people sending papers from all over the world. Then COVID happened, and it shut down for a little bit around 2019. And we were sort of gifted this journal. And we'll talk more about that journey as we talk about abolition and how we ended up here. But 
they gave us this journal and we kind of thought about literary criticism itself as such an isolating term. It's so rooted in academia. It's so elitist in and of itself, but it's like other things can be critical, you know? Um, a YouTube film analysis of Barbie, that's literary criticism. Talking about the cultural connotations of food, that's criticism. Or t in today's world, when you're watching CNN and Fox, knowing how to read media is like such an important life skill. So literary criticism shouldn't be isolated to English majors. In fact, and I would argue in today's complicated world, and especially in navigating the field of social justice, it's like a life skill. So I think we kept the title the same, Madison Journal of Literary Criticism, but opened up the publication to any medium of criticism. Like my favorite thing we published is a girl from UChicago sent us a short film and we took a screenshot of every second and turned it into a comic strip. And it was such a beautiful film talking about consciousness and becoming aware of problems. So criticism is everywhere. And I'm really excited to be running this magazine. Me too. I'm so happy to be here. We just wrapped up one of our um, study group sessions. We're coming in after that. And I'm just like, every time I leave our Tuesday sessions, I'm just filled with such joy. And I'm so happy. Um, so the MJLC existed long before Rhea and I. Um, but Rhea and I's journey with abolition also began long before the MJLC too. So to kind of jump into that and answer some dying questions, here is our journey with abolition. Let's cut to COVID. It's 2020. Anna and I met on Zoom in a class called English 182, Race, Labor, and Incarceration. And that class single-handedly changed both of our lives and our college trajectory. Like, for sure. Not to pinpoint it, but <laughs> definitely a turning point. Um, so in that class, we had what Rhea calls, and I love this phrase, aha moments or moments of consciousness, where all of a sudden you realize all of the things that are happening in the world around you. Remember, we're in the middle of COVID where we experience a pandemic. Um, I grew up around Minneapolis. We're watching George Floyd and Black Lives Matter sweep the nation for <laughs> lack of a better way to phrase that. Um, and there's all of these things happening around us. And at the same time, Rhea and I are learning about all of the theoretical backgrounds behind it. And when you have this aha moment of consciousness where you simply can't unsee what's happening around you. You can't disconnect yourself and from what you're seeing and learning. I want to put a note out there that that aha moment is incredibly rooted in privilege. We were both students who had access to technology, sitting in a university classroom, learning about systemic um, capitalist and racial and um, racial injustice and having that aha moment at you know age 18 mm -hmm. versus having lived it your whole life is a privilege in and of itself and I just want to put, make, put that really clear um, but I think what made that class so powerful was it was about it was called race labor and incarceration but the class we read novels we read James Baldwin we read Giovanni's room we read Chester Himes yesterday will make you cry a lot of the stuff in that class wasn't about prison because i think when people hear abolition and incarceration they immediately think a physical jail cell but i think what made that class special was it was talking about incarceration as a state of being and as a state of entrapment and you can be trapped in a lot of different faculties that isn't being physically in shackles you can be trapped in a system you can be trapped in a socioeconomic position you can be trapped by how people perceive you you can be trapped you know there's so many ways in society that can trap you and it's primarily rooted in capital and typically the hierarchy markers are race um, and gender 
So I think that class was just incredibly eye-opening, not in the fact that things were messed up or that there were problems, but that everything was intrinsically and intentionally connected, where the problems we were seeing with COVID and uh, Black Lives Matter and, you know, like issues that we had with school and access and healthcare, they were also incredibly connected. So looking at all of that, what now? I think that was our question, too. (laughs) Um, The class ended and we were like, oh, my God, what do we do? Like, this can't just end. We can't just take these aha moments, this thing of consciousness and just burned into the back of our retinas you walk just away cannot unsee it and walk yeah away. we can't just walk away so i think it was like december like around christmas and i emailed professor darren who no i facetimed you oh anna facetimed me that's what it was i'm so sorry and we were just Come like on. talking we were nerding out we were like didn't know what to do then we sent the email being like can we meet you in office hours and can we just like talk yeah and then anna you can go so from there. The FaceTime, maybe we remember this differently. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is the lore. We'll get it down. <laughs> but we're taking this other class. Unimportant. We're reading this paper, and I was like, whoa, let's think about systems theory. And all of a sudden, I was like, systems theory completely connects to abolition and everything we're learning about in this other class, which 100% reset it, nerding out, but we were having fun with it. And so we reach out to our professor, and eventually, through all those connections, we started conducting research on how we can view abolition, as we learned in that race um, and labor class, as more than just defunding the police or abolishing the prison industrial complex, which is something that we typically associate with abolition. When we think of abolition, we think of police, we think of prisons. But instead, if we want to look at it from this more systems, larger, holistic theory, we wanted to identify patterns of social harms across all different social spheres. That includes education, that includes healthcare, that includes credit and labor markets and housing, not just criminal justice, which is when the prison and the policing comes in. So we had this sort of research idea to look at how all of these different social spheres and their institutions and their policies, their histories, their influences on one another, how this creates what's called an emergent effect, which is kind of a technical term, but an emergent effect that is the carceral state. So by emergent effect, I just mean that the interactions of this larger social system, including all of those spheres that I listed, produces together what we know as the carceral state, which I promise we'll define a little bit more. But that carceral state, that emergent effect, cannot be pinpointed back to any one root cause or any one social sphere, any policy decision, any point in history. It exists because all of these systems interact. So instead of just looking at abolition, once again, as defunding the police, we're like, how can we take all of this knowledge that we learned about connections between what we're seeing, what we're experiencing, what we're learning about in class, these different forms of incarceration, and turn it into something larger? Okay, so just to clarify, because I know that was a lot of information, which Anna so lovingly provided us. Sorry, we talk fast. (laughs) (laughs) We took a class, and we talked about incarceration and what that means. And then we talked about harm, and then we talked about the carceral. I'm an English major, so I love my metaphors. But I think basically what happened was we went from that class, we went to office hours, and we decided to do research on examining the carceral state. So I think the best example I can use is imagine you have a hose. And it's a garden hose and water spraying out from one side. Then suddenly your garden hose has a hole in it. And now, you know, there's like, you know, a little sprinkle of water sticking out. So, you know, you get your electrical tape, your duct tape, whatever it is, cover up that hole and the hose keeps working. 
But, you know, the water pressure from what you just did pushes in on the hose and suddenly there's another hole and another hole. And eventually you're just taping and taping and taping and your whole hose isn't green anymore. It's like gray from the duct tape that it's wrapped in. And there's water just spraying everywhere, like those vertical sprinklers. You know what I'm talking about? Those horizontal, <laughs> not vertical, those horizontal <laughs> sprinklers you have. The water's vertical. The I water's. <laughs> but I guess where I'm getting at is after a certain point, you got to throw out the hose and get a new hose or get a different form versus taping and taping and taping. And I think where I'm getting at that is Anna and I were kind of looking at the system. And I think when people hear abolition or hear terms like that, they're very much like, oh, you're tearing stuff up. But I think it's more like noticing that stuff or the current status quo is being held together by duct tape. Hardly. And there's stuff leaking out everywhere. And maybe instead of reforming stuff and taping stuff over and over again, let's take a step back holistically. Use that sort of systems perspective, Anna was saying. And a systems perspective is a super fancy word of just saying, look at how problems are connected, how one hole might be connected to the other hole or the right. holes are on the same hose. And it's looking at things as kind of like an ecology. It's looking at sort of like our status quo as a sort of an ecosystem and how they interact with one another. So we took the class, we had all these questions, we said, hey, let's look at incarceration as a product of a larger ecosystem, not just prisons. Right, and it's really just to note now, important to look at it from this holistic systems hose perspective because there are so many activists that exist right now that are doing separate things and working on their own individual whole, and we need to acknowledge how all of them work together, how both the problem and the solution can work together. So if you have a hole down the left of your hose that's about the healthcare sphere and talking about big pharma and trying to get people their medication, somehow that might connect over to education and how students are living their lives in schools. We have to look at it from a systems perspective because if we don't, we might run into feedback loops. People who are working in healthcare might create a solution that then negatively affects someone who's already doing activism in education. And so we have to simply look at how everything is connected. So after that class freshman year, Anna and I began a journey of research for basically two years. And what we did was we examined abolition without using the words abolition, police, or prisons. And I'll get to that in a little bit as to why we did that. But we basically examined what we called, and we did not coin this term, but we looked at the carceral state. And when we looked at, talked about abolition, we talked about the carceral state versus the institution of the prison industrial complex. And what we mean by the carceral state is sort of how the status quo functions in a way that is incarcerating, almost as like a adding, making that a gerund there, but how things behave in a carceral manner. And carceral manner does not necessarily have to be physical incarceration. I think one example that I love is, you know, having, uh, instead of having prevention, we're doing punishment in the form of like retributive justice. Like you see movies like Taken, right? Justice is always violence and based in vigilantism and always like almost this idea of the hero is someone who relies on state violence. And that's kind of a carceral mentality that we all have. Yeah. So to branch off with this idea of the carceral state being based in punishment instead of prevention. My favorite way to describe this is with what I call my little Johnny example. So picture this. We're in a kindergarten classroom. You're the teacher. Little Johnny, this usually lovely kid in your class, is running around being an absolute menace, breaking pencils, so much energy, running laps, screaming. We don't know. 
little Johnny runs through the middle of the room and knocks over all of the blocks that Sarah just spent the entire time building. And so you as the teacher, you're like, hey, Johnny. And you shout across the room and you're like, Johnny, stop doing that. Stop running. And you come at it with this like punitive verbal repercussion. And instead of, sorry, you come at it with this verbal punitive repercussion instead of maybe looking at Johnny and saying, why is Johnny running around so much today? Why is Johnny being an absolute little nuisance right now? Just a menace to society. Just a menace to society. We all, we all have known a little Johnny in our day. And if we had asked that question, maybe we would have realized that mm, little Johnny wasn't able to participate in recess today. So he didn't get his wigs out. And little Johnny has way too much energy to be focused and sitting in a classroom. And if we look at why he didn't participate and dig a little bit deeper, maybe he forgot his gym shoes. Maybe Johnny can't afford gym shoes. And so when you dig at it through this prevention versus punishment mindset, we can see that a lot of different answers come up, which will lead to different solutions. Yeah. So kind of based off of, first of all, I just love the phrase, get your wiggles out. I use it all the time. I love that one too. (laughs) But when we talk about what is a carceral state, because you're like, how does this tie to it? It's kind of this idea of responding to behaving in ways that go against rules, which is almost, you know, like the law of a school immediately with something punitive go to a corner get a suspension get an expulsion versus prevention and care and asking how these problems arose versus treating these treating them as problems rather than as side effects of something larger so when we talk about what's the carceral state those practices in schools are something that's carceral um, another example i have is this idea of safety and security when we talk about the carceral state so ray i'm going to ask you a question i'm ready how would you describe like a safe neighborhood? I think a safe neighborhood where it'd be where you feel comfortable sleeping at night, whether or not you're alone or with someone else. Okay, so let's say you were alone and you want to feel safe at night. Yes. What do you do? I personally, I would close my blinds, lock my door, probably check all of the doors to the outside world. Um, And then also shut my bedroom door in particular yeah um and shut my lights off and then like run to bed so like basically <laughs> enclosing don't let the do- monsters yeah. in the dark get you. To bed. so you're enclosing you yourself in your room and encasing yes. yourself in your sheets right quite literally yes. literally but let's talk about that for a second because safety is not the same thing as security we're conflating those two and that's not on you like i'm the same way but when we talk about your house at night that you feel comfortable sleeping in that's a really secure house but is it a safe house? Because a safe house is where you feel comfortable. But everything you're doing seems to be provoked by fear, not by comfort. You might be comfortable in the sheets at the end. But, you know, closing the window, double checking, turning off the lights. Maybe you have a security system. You're setting all that up. Not to feel safe, but to feel secure. To feel not afraid. And I don't think safety is the antithesis or the opposite of fear. Security is. And that's literally when we talk about a surveillance state or security. People are installing ring doorbells to feel safe. People are putting cameras on their back doors. People are adding automatic lights that are super bright and kind of, you can't see the stars. Oh my gosh, my neighbor has one of those. Yeah, and it's just this this, this idea of we're conflating safety with security and our definition of security is something that's very carceral. It's one rooted in fear. It's not trusting your neighbor. This sounds crazy, but like if we get a little speculative for a minute, a safe neighborhood is one 
that you could sleep with your windows open, doors open, your neighbor could come get in and grab milk and you wouldn't care because you know your neighbor. Feeling safe is feeling protected in the people around you. Feeling comfortable to splay out starfish style, no covers. <laughs> you don't need to hide because you know everyone. You trust everyone. You care about everyone. A safe neighborhood is one where if there's an emergency and you hear a loud noise at your neighbor's door, your instinct isn't going to be to call the cops. It's going to be to go check stuff. And you won't be worried about your quote unquote safety because you're in a safe like neighborhood. So what are those conditions that cultivate a sense of safety? It's not a ring doorbell and a bright fluorescent light. It's building community. But we've sort of conflated this idea that safety and security are the same thing. So when we talk about, hey, Anna and I are talking about research of the carceral state and potential abolition of the carceral state, we're not, I feel like when people hear the word abolition, they think burning something down. I think it's more about building up a world that isn't carceral and that doesn't have these sort of carceral qualities, whether it's relying on prison as a first defense to any sort of mis misconduct in society that you could define as crime or having this sort of carceral mentality of punishment that or justice is equal to retribution or security is equal to safety and violence is equal to the like the first resort that we go to yeah and these are just our two sort of favorite ways to introduce the idea of the carceral state as something beyond just prisons but Prevention versus punishment and security versus safety, these different types of behaviors or mindsets or lenses to view the world or go about our practices are types of behaviors and responses to harm that exist across all of the social spheres and institutions. We can track those patterns between all of the institutions, all of the policy history, all of these spheres, and I mean... That's kind of what Rhea and I did yeah. in our research. So our research basically that summer was we read books like we read Subprime Health. We read um, Golden Gulag. We read um, we read some Dorothy Roberts. We read Killing the Black Body. We yeah. read Color of Law. Richard. We basically read a bunch of books about healthcare, housing, education, labor and credit. And we sort of tracked these patterns that we called carceral dimensions basically how things behave carcerally. And we kind of found this trend between the 60s and the 90s and kind of during that rise of, quote unquote, like the war on drugs, the war on crimes, the prison industrial boom. Mm -hmm. And we found like a bunch of, of patterns across all these different spheres. And they were things like moving things private. So private solutions to social problems. So like getting landlords involved in the housing crisis or predatory inclusion Colorblind policies, when you say stuff like, I don't see race, but what you're actually doing is ignoring conditions and then allowing race race discrimination to continue, yeah. state violence, and then, of course, performative symbolic change. And we will not bore you with the details of all of those lists because we literally have written, I'd hundred, can I say hundreds, tens, hundreds, too many, many, many pages um, detailing these. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you are interested, we do have more information on that, but... We'll, we'll keep it out of this episode for now. And I think what made our research at least fun for me, I'm going to talk about being an English major again. We did a constraint-based argument. So what that means is sometimes in creative writing, you do these workshops where they'll be like, we want you to write a short story without using the letter B. Or we want you to write a short story without using the word and. And it kind of forces you to get creative because you're creating this constraint for yourself. And in order to work around that constraint, you have to think of better vocabulary. Um, so what we did was we said, let's have a conversation about all these things that we're learning about, these just terrible, appalling things. 
But the problem is when you try to have these conversations with people, especially boomers or especially people who identify more conservative politically, the second you say things like defund the police, abolition, you know, any of these things, immediately prison industrial industrial complex, the conversation shuts down. And I think at the time, I don't think this is our stance anymore, but at the time we were like, we want to work towards solutions and maybe not pacifying people, but like at the time, I think we were 18. So we were just like, we want people to understand us. I mean, to a degree, also make it more palatable, which once again, maybe we don't agree with that. There is some power in that still, though. It's a a whole other conversation. conversation. But I think at the time we were trying to make not only our argument more palatable, but have an intelligent conversation without people shutting down immediately or even people who agree with us politically because I feel like again those terms are so they have such a heavy connotation that I think sometimes people throw around the terms without discussing what those terms mean so we decided to study this sort of ecological map of the carceral state and lay out these carceral dimensions but we wouldn't use the words prison policing or abolition so that was our research and that's what basically led us to eventually we did this research for two years and after two years we were like what do we do now and then they gifted us the mjlc and we kind of took what we learned and tried to make a collective out of it yeah did the work of the theory and of course in this theory recognizing the power of practice so in moving from this two years of theory into practice we've already told you a little bit about what the mjlc is Um, we were gifted this magazine had a bit of a rebranding and introduced this idea of a study group. And this whole idea was based and centered in the idea of creating a collective of people in the Madison community from all different types of background, doing all different types of work. And we really, really wanted to center the org on this study group and use the theory that we worked for to create a community and create this more digestible, tangible outcome through both the community and the sort of anthology of works that we have with the magazine. Speaking of an anthology, I want to backtrack a tiny bit. Anna and I formatted the findings of our research, which is I also love, as lesson plans versus like a formal research paper, just because we were like, hey, we're not experts on any of this. We made mainly form, we had conversations about these books and we got interested in abolition, but we learned through conversation. So I think what was really cool about being gifted the MJLC, which By the way, we're so grateful to the people who founded it and put all this effort into it. Shout out. Yeah. But (laughs) I think it was very much like, hey, I'm personally super passionate about literary criticism and, you know, sort of de-academicizing. Yeah. That's not a real word. Deactivating. Removing. (laughs) I think taking literary criticism and making it more of a life skill out of the context of academia and how reading and thinking critically is what led us and to this work and what defined this work. So sort of combining that passion of reading and thinking critically, this research that we formatted as lessons plans, and this idea of how do you share stuff? And I think, yeah, you can have, art is just so powerful in sharing stuff. You can share stuff however you want to, but art is is evocative and makes people care. There's so much pathos in it. So it combined abolitionist research and lesson plans, AKA study group, how do we convey that and share it, AKA magazine. And it brought in other brains. As much as I love you, Rhea. Rhea and I spent a lot of time a together. A lot of time together. It's worth, We actually realized this past week that we are both each other's longest term relationship. Shout out Rhea Dingra. I love you. Love you, Miss Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> but we were like, hey, as much as I appreciate you, 
we should probably bring some other brains into this and see what other people are thinking and probably do a little bit less of the talking, which is ironic because now we're um, opening the podcast with our voices. But we wanted to put to practice this sort of hyper-connected, simultaneous activism that we think the world needs. And that always starts with bringing people together. So the group isn't about me. The group isn't about Rhea. The group isn't even about our research or our views. It is meant to bring in people who are already doing work in the Madison community in whatever social sphere, whatever area that they're working in, into one room, connect their voices, and give them a platform for everyone to share their work, their opinions, their struggles, their activism, and combine that work to be more effective and to be, I mean, I don't like the word efficient, but to pr- like create better activism. When the carceral state is a systemic problem, you need a systemic solution. You can't be taping up one hole. You got to be doing all the things at once, which means at least the goal of the MJLC is to create a space where all those people can get in one room or can read this one publication or can see this really sort of beautiful intersectional approach to social justice and abolition, which was really rooted in care and art. And I just one other note about literary criticism before we move on, because I totally forgot to say this earlier. When we talk about like the what now aspect, like even earlier, we were were being speculative. It takes a lot of imagination to combat something like the carceral state. The status quo sometimes seems a lot more static than it is dynamic, but it is dynamic. It's upheld through all these carceral practices. And I think for me, the most clear example of creativity is like a little kid playing the Y game or a kid with crayons drawing all over the walls, breaking all the rules. Art, little Johnny would play the Y game so hard. Yeah. <laughs> art is inherently, you know, I guess we skipped over this part, but the tagline of the MJLC is asking why and dreaming of more. <laughs> and I think art inherently is questioning the system, asking why, and then creating something new, dreaming of more. So I think kind of rooting it in an art magazine is something that I think is uniquely ours and uniquely special. Yeah, so given that sort of background on what the MJLC, specifically the study group, is based in, um, how would you describe an abolitionist? What do they believe and what are the confusions with the term? Yeah, so as we said, a lot of times when we bring up the word abolition, people will either think defund the police, they will think of um, its roots in American history of slavery, um, where it'll be like it'll think of like oh are you gonna set the world on fire or like you looking to tear everything down and we're like whoa 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 let us define this so let's take a moment or like yes and yes and let's take a moment to get rid of all of that confusion and answer this question very directly for you um Rhea can I have you take us away with the history of the term yeah, um, it's, I'm not a hist, I, again, we're not experts, but I think I'm just going to summarize what we learned in our class and kind of from there. So I think when people think of abolition, they think of the 14th Amendment and uh, technically the abolition of slavery. But when you look at the 14th Amendment, it basically says you cannot have forced labor unless an individual is incarcerated. So Forced labor didn't go away, it just shifted forms, and it kind of went from slavery to incarceration. And, you know, post the 14th Amendment, and especially with the uh, prison industrial complex booming between the 1960s and the 1990s, you see that everything's kind of just switched over, and abolishing something was calling for an end to something. 
And technically, the institution of slavery ended, but the function of it didn't because it just continued through this different institution. So the abolition of one thing didn't ab abolish the root issues. It just invited or created this new form of discrimination to create the same sort of harm. And in that process of transitioning, obviously, as studied by a lot of other people, the demographics of the pattern transition too. And that's seen in our mass incarceration. That is seen throughout all of these historical patterns that Rhea and I have looked at. And this whole idea of transitioning from one institution to the next, to the next, to the next, with the same, the form changing and the function continuing is often called the afterlife of slavery, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. So when we talk about abolition today, it's kind of working towards the same thing. It's getting, I mean, obviously it's a much bigger picture than prisons, but it's looking at forced labor. It's looking at getting rid of conditions that cause harm. So I think when people are calling for an abolishment of something, they're not necessarily saying get rid of an institution, which obviously they are, but also the conditions that create that institution, that cause us to rely on institution, on that institution. Okay, so as abolition is evolving from era to era to era, we have abolition of slavery, we move into the Jim Crow era, which turns into the 1960s civil rights era, which moves into the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration boom in the 80s and 90s, and we're moving forward and all of a sudden we're here today, as those forms are evolving and as the function is remaining, the definition of the carceral is changing as well. Incarceration looks different in slavery as it did in the prison boom and in mass incarceration. And once again, we're expanding the carceral to include all things in which you're feeling trapped. So that can be by social norms. That can be by different policies as discussed in like the 1960s Civil Rights Acts. This can be in just simple like social standards that we set for each other, in different identities, in different cycles of life, in angsty teens like Rhea brings up. All of these are similar feelings of being incarcerated in some form or another. There's this spectacular James Baldwin quote that he wrote in an open letter to my sister Angela Davis where he talks about how cap capital democratically slaughters black and white individuals alike. And I think what he's saying there is everyone's incarcerated, just at very, very different levels of degrees of extremity and for very, very different reasons. But it's still all connected. Think about Think about breaking laws, oftentimes laws like loitering, like vagrancy, or the kind of people who don't who tend to break laws, typically individuals who are unemployed. It's people who don't participate in, we sound like conspiracy theorists, but I promise we're not. <laughs> people who don't participate in the status quo system, one that is rooted in capitalism, are punished. And we talk about the conditions that create crime. Everything is inherently connected to capital. And so when we're sort of expanding the idea of the carceral and recognizing those patterns, and expanding things that are like non-tangible, we just want to draw connections between all these different types of incarceration and try and pinpoint where they exist outside of prisons. Remember, we have that sort of, what did you call it again? Constraint-based argument. Um, so much like the patterns between timeouts for children or expulsion for students in schools and solitary confinement in, in um, prisons, we can see punishment and exclusion exist in prisons, but also exist in 
other structures like family structures, schools, all the other examples that we mentioned. So, so I guess where we're going there is what does abolition mean today? And I think what I'd say, and again, I don't want to speak for all abolitionists because there is a lot of discourse in terms of what that term means. And I'm sure there's discourse between me and Anna. So I'm just going to speak for myself here. Abolition is building a daycare after school. Abolition is making sure people have access to affordable insulin. Abolition is making sure landlords don't take advantage of their tenants. Abolition is building up a world that eradicates the conditions that cause people to end up physically incarcerated or cause everyone to feel socially and mentally incarcerated. So abolition isn't about tearing stuff down. It's about building stuff up. It's about recognizing how everything within the status quo, practice, and law is inherently tied to the carceral and combat combating that car- that carceriality, car- com- combating those carceral dimensions. Lovely. Abolition is about dreaming and asking questions and not taking things for granted and imagining systems of care rather than systems of harm. And I think as abolition as a movement has evolved, despite all the different causes you might hear, abolish this or abolish that, what it's really saying is people are hurting and things are hurting, whether it's abolishing, you know, laws that lead to bad pipelines in the environment. Like you're getting rid of systems of harm and building up something new. Beautiful definition. My favorite thing in the whole world is when I have an idea and Rhea just so eloquently says it like poetry. It just makes me, (laughs) brings me so much joy. I can, ugh. Anyways. But Rhea, I have a question for you. Oh no, I know where this is going. We all know where this is going. The oh so popular question. But if we envision this new world and we get rid of prisons, what do we do with the murderers? Or the real bad guys. The real bad guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think a lot of people, when you hear abolition, immediately assume that your individuals are incredibly naive, that people don't take real uh, real crime into consideration. But, and again, I don't want to speak for all abolitionists, but abolition to me has always been a process and a journey and not an end goal. So I'm going to backtrack away from abolition completely and use a fun little metaphor, but I promise it'll make sense. So, Ray, I'm going to involve you back in this again. Hello again. Hey. Congratulations. You're engaged. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is all hypothetical. So you got to plan a wedding. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We're we're not talking about the institution of marriage here. We're just just roll with the example. Yeah. (laughs) So you're planning. You're engaged. You're planning a wedding. First thing you do. Find a venue. Okay, what else? Start listing stuff. Um, I would also figure out what guests to invite, figure out what food, maybe the date in general or like what invites. season. I'm going to spend way too much time on my wedding dress for sure. Invites, outfits, who like gets to be, oh, what is it when they're like up on stage with you? Oh, like the, like the, the, the <laughs> Wait, wedding no, party? The wedding party. The wedding yeah, party. the wedding party. The figure out who's going to be in that. Um, I call my mom, I guess, because I'm engaged. Um, okay, <laughs> I know you're gluten free. We got to figure out catering. Yeah, we got to like get the gluten free goods in there. <laughs> oh my for gosh, just for me, for no one else. So There's much to flowers. do. Yeah. Oh my god, like seating. Also charts, music. Music. I will dictate oh the music. There's a lot. Yeah. So according to Wikipedia. An average wedding takes 12 to 18 months to plan. That's Ooh. so. Which blew my mind. Long. 
Okay. I'm going to be a whole new person in 12 to 18 months. I mean, a lot of people don't even make it to the wedding because <laughs> wedding planning stressful <laughs> financially, emotionally. Like, come on. So here's my little fun scenario for you. Flash forward 12 to 18 months. You have a beautiful wedding. You're ready to go. Period. And there's a tornado <laughs> the day of your wedding. What do you do? Well, I would definitely postpone. Okay, or if it's like outdoor, maybe move indoor. Yeah, <laughs> like I would just sit in the corner and cry for sure. Well, okay, but what what would you do? Like think well, after the crying. stop it. The okay. wedding because there's get, a tornado. So that's it. You're just not getting married because there's a tornado. I mean, like court heart court courthouses exist. Like okay, or it's fine. If you have a lot of basement money. bunkers exist. Basement <laughs> bunkers postponing stuff. You can get married in the wine cellar of the venue. That can Literally. be cute and romantic. A little bunker wedding. Alternatives. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess where I'm going here is. When you picked a date 12 to 18 months ago, like, I don't care how good satellites are. You cannot predict the weather 12 to 18 months in I advance. Know, I, I know two of the best weather people at the station, and they could not tell they me what the that. weather would be. But, you know, you could probably get the weather two weeks in advance. True. And you could maybe, instead of crying the day of your wedding, two weeks prior, you could plan be like... Plan a wedding in two weeks? <laughs> no, we don't plan a wedding, but you could, like, make a backup plan, you know? Or, like, you could make a backup plan. Yeah. So I guess what I'm going with it is... Even though there is a like a possibility that there'll be a tornado on your wedding, or let's generalize a little bit more. There's a possibility something will go wrong. And I'm sorry, it's a wedding. Stuff's gonna go wrong. Like it always does. Stuff's gonna hit the fan. Like stuff's gonna go wrong. But that doesn't mean it's not worth getting married. Because you believe in your partner and you're in love and you're excited and stuff's gonna go wrong. But getting married, that journey is still worth it and when problems come up we'll deal with it when we get there and i'm not saying it's like a cop-out answer of oh let's not deal with it at all because like if there is a freaking tornado you're gonna have to deal with it you really can't ignore that the same way if there is murder we're gonna have to deal with it you really can't ignore that but i think when you use the worst case scenario as a defense against a principle or a belief i think that's a little bit of an unfair critique because I'm saying as an abolitionist, you're dreaming of a world where the conditions that lead to harm aren't there. So that's school, healthcare, housing, education, credit, labor, knowing your neighbor, feeling safe. We're eradicating the conditions that cause our quote unquote status quo definition of crime. You are building a system where everyone is well fed, everyone is safe, everyone is clothed, everyone is healthy, everyone has access to an education. I don't know what that world's going to look like. And I can't draw you up a blueprint the same way I can't give you like wedding planners can't give you a blueprint of what the day of is going to look like, but they can, they can give you a pretty good game plan on how to get there and how to proceed when you get there. But when stuff goes wrong, wedding planners as professionals figure stuff out and sometimes not as professionals, they have to just kind of go off the cuff at that point. So when I say dreaming of an abolitionist world and people ask me, well, what about murderers? My response to that. I don't want to like pacify. I don't want to not take it seriously, but it's we'll deal with it when we get there. And maybe there won't even be that big of a problem. Maybe it'll just be a little blip the day of. Or maybe there will be a bigger problem. We can consider what how should we deal with harm in an abolitionist world or what does harm look like in an abolitionist world? In theory, there is no harm in an abolitionist world. But in practice, I don't know. So at least for me, I view abolition very much as a journey and a process and asking why and dreaming of more and building towards something. And yeah, I can't give you a drawing of what that something looks like, but it doesn't mean that that something is not worth working towards. It doesn't mean it's not worth getting married. It doesn't mean it's not worth 
caring for each other rather than harming one another. I think the exigence of abolition is strong enough and is strong enough against the status quo that it is worth working towards despite not having a clear blueprint. And it also does not mean that we are just naive. Yeah, we get it. We're young. We started this when we were 18. We're not experts. We understand that. But it just means that we're questioning the things around us and we're asking, is there a more effective way that we could be doing this? Let's stop taking for granted the way that our world operates, the things that we're so used to, the traditions and the norms that we've set into, and start thinking about how we can improve them. And I think everyone across any aisle can agree with that. We should be moving and improving. So <laughs> back, wait, oh yeah, go for it. We should be, I'm, I'm gonna say that again. We should be moving and improving. <laughs> and I think so many people will be able to agree with that. And when it comes to our solutions and to our answers on how we should improve, yeah, that's drastically different from differ from person to person. But it's something that everyone should be asking. And honestly, if we're framing it in that way, I think abolition is something that boomers can get behind. I'll say it. And I so we've been talking for a little over 30 minutes. Ray asked us, what does abolition mean? What are we doing? What's the MJLC? And I can define it in less than 10 words, which I said earlier, but this is just... I love that this is the definition that we've chosen. It's abolition is asking why and then dreaming of more. Abolition is building up a world in which we don't need prisons, hopefully. Like Rhea said, it's one in which everyone feels fed and safe. And I'm going to quote Rhea on this. So, or do you want to say it? You can quote me. Okay. Oh, MLA not, citation. MLA citation. I will be quoting the lovely Miss Dingra. Thank you. Abolition is a practice in which the conditions that create crime are eradicated by improving social spheres that are connected to the carceral state so that we don't have a need for the carceral institution. You asked for a definition we shall provide. <laughs> so good. So good. So now that we know what an abolitionist is and what they strive for and how they view the carceral state, let's bring it back to the MJLC. What does this upcoming semester look like? I think, like we said, the MJLC functions in two parts. So I think asking why is really rooted in the study group. We're asking questions. We're reading texts. We did poetry analysis today. It was cool. We did. I made a structured academic controversy the other week. We yeah. debated strikes. It was but fun. The MJLC is it, it's literary criticism and conversation. It is being critical of the world. It is being a child with crayons on the walls. It's asking why things are the way that they are and having really smart conversations about them with really smart students and community stakeholders. Then... The magazine is dreaming of more. What's next? So we've this is our third edition, and this semester our theme is resistance. So if any of this sounds appealing, concerning, whatever your reaction may be, we have our study group meetings every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Our Instagram, at the MJLC, will update all of our locations weekly. Um, so that's on there. Well, Ray, thank you so much for having us and of for letting course. us talk and ramble. I'm next up on Abolitionist Roundtable. So true. Anna and I will never be doing this ever again. 
<laughs> not the podcast, but rambling and talking like this. Look forward to not hearing our voices in this depth. Next, but next next time we come on, you can hear three new voices yeah. from study group that will be talking about strikes so here at UW. When we talk about resistance, the way we've sort of structured study group is every week looks at a different form of resistance, whether it's strikes, protests, today was existence, art and music, and the podcast is going to be a place to roundtable, talk about those forms of protest. And it's not a contest as to what's better, but just a holistic picture. We hope this series will show a holistic picture of resistance. So next yeah. up, strikes. Thanks next for tuning strikes. in.